You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And today we have two segments on how countries can be better prepared for global health challenges. My first guest today is Dr. Caitlin Rivers. She is an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Rivers, welcome to Washington Post Live. It's great to be with you. Thank you. And before we get started, I have a reminder to our audience, we would love to hear any questions you have. So please tweet at us using the handle at post live. Well, let's dive right in. Um, Dr. Rivers, we are nearing the three year anniversary of the first reported COVID case. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, if you could go back in time, can you identify one thing you really wish that health experts in the U.S. would have known before cases exploded here? Well, one of the early revelations of this virus is that asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is possible, meaning people can spread it without necessarily knowing that they are infected. That is a different attribute than some other infectious diseases where you're not really able to spread until you're clearly infected. That discovery for me that asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is possible really changed my understanding of this virus and ratcheted up my concern about it. And so I think looking forward to preparing for the next uh, outbreak epidemic pandemic, being able to quickly understand the epidemiology of the virus is going to be really important to informing our understanding of risk. And let me ask you that same question when we're when we're thinking back over the last three years and the many policy decisions that were made. Is there one thing that's really clear to you that should have been done differently in terms of the response? I think there are many opportunities to learn. I can't think of a single thing, but lessons that I will be taking from the pandemic into my career going forward. And of course, I specialize in outbreaks, epidemics and pandemics is the option to use face masks to reduce transmission. In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was not widely recognized that that was going to be an important intervention. We now understand that it is. I think we have all redoubled a commitment to ensuring that schools are safe so that they can remain open for children, for learning, and so that children can access the services that schools provide. And I think one lesson that has been true across outbreaks, this is not a revelation from COVID-19, is that it's very important that we act quickly and aggressively before things spiral out of control. And I think that underscores a real need to have the elements in place to do that aggressive response so that we can get ahead of the virus and prevent these kinds of wide scale events. When I think about the different measures that were used to try to stop the virus, it seems like one that didn't get a lot of attention was uh, air filtering systems. I know that we've had some reporting here at the Post about how there's sort of been an underinvestment there and often an, uh, oftentimes an underappreciation for the importance of clean air. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have a similar sense or was there adequate attention paid there? I'm glad you raised that because ventilation and filtration is another element of uh, emphasis that has been added as we've gone along across the pandemic. It was not prominent early in, in our response, but I think we've all come to understand that it needs to play a bigger role. Focusing on ventilation and filtration has the benefit of helping against not just COVID-19, but all sorts of infectious diseases. We're in the middle of a large wave of RSV. We're likely headed into a bad flu season. Ventilation and filtration can help to prevent those viruses from spreading as well. 
And I want to talk about RSV and, and flu. But first, a little bit more about COVID. Um, of course, one of the the biggest problems in the response was sort of the fractured response and different decisions from local leaders versus state leaders versus uh, recommendations from federal agencies. Um, are there any thoughts, do you have any thoughts on how we could have a more unified front next time, uh, assuming we're still going to have the same system we have now of a pretty, uh, you know, not a homogenous public health system, it's, it's very fractured. That's right, and that is both a feature and a challenge of our public health system. Most of our public health authorities lie at the state level, and in some states, it's even lower at the county level. And that means each jurisdiction has the option or really even the, the power to make their own decisions. And as you know, that can lead to a lot of differences in how jurisdictions can respond. That is a strength because public health and what each community needs varies from place to place. But when we have a nationwide event like this where people look around and say, why am I under these restrictions or why am I benefiting from these decisions, whereas my neighboring jurisdiction is not? I think the federal government's role here is really advisory to provide the kinds of guidance and assistance that can help uh, state and local jurisdictions to make those decisions. But I think there will always be some discrepancies in how things are implemented, and that needs to be something we plan for and recognize going forward. Well, and one other thing we found was really fractured was um, the way that uh, health information was collected, and we know it wasn't collected the same way everywhere. A lot of times there was an inadequate collection of health data. Um, how did that affect the effort to find solutions to the pandemic? That's right. Many people don't realize that data that is shared from state and local jurisdictions to CDC is done on a voluntary basis. And often a data use agreement, a legal agreement has to be negotiated before any data is shared. And this is true for every single public health issue. COVID-19, monkeypox, influenza, all of those require individual data use agreements from every single jurisdiction. The problem is it's very slow. It can take weeks, if not months, to negotiate these agreements. And often, even after the agreements are done, the data are not standard. Part of the reason that we were very late to recognize the disparate impacts by race and ethnicity of the COVID-19 pandemic is because not all jurisdictions collected race data and not all jurisdictions reported race data. And so I think going forward, one thing I know that the CDC is interested in is gaining the authority to be able to compel or direct that data reporting in certain public health emergencies so that we can turn the crank on really getting that data uh, flowing faster be able to analyze it and share it out with both the public and with the public health officials who need it to make decisions. Of course, one massive success we saw was the rapid development of the vaccines and, uh, you know, the fact that virtually anybody could access a vaccine uh, within months of them being rolled out. Um, and yet, I know that we have still had a problem of people not getting vaccinated. And it seems as though that effort to get those folks vaccinated has really stalled. Uh, can I get your thoughts on that effort? Are we going to see more progress? Or at some point, do we just kind of realize that there's going to be a certain population that isn't going to get the vaccine no matter what they hear about it? I think in public health, we always try and we always hope. I think that right now many people have, even people who are reluctant to get vaccinated, uh, have relationships with their primary care provider, with other medical professionals in the community. And I know that those people are committed to continuing to try to increase vaccination levels. But I think you are absolutely right that vaccine levels are still not where we want them. 
Only about 10% of eligible people have received the bivalent booster that has been available since September. This is the formulation that protects against the variants that are currently circulating. It's an updated vaccine. Only one in 10 eligible people have gotten it. And so I just want to encourage people to do that, especially as we head into the winter season. What about the low vaccination rates among kids? Uh, I think those numbers remain pretty low. Uh, why do you think that is? And how much does that concern you? Children are at low risk of severe illness. And so parents have a low risk perception. They don't perceive their children to be at high risk of severe illness. And that is largely accurate. It's one of the small mercies, if you will, of this pandemic that children are largely spared. I am a parent, all three of my children are vaccinated. And so I do strongly encourage it as a means to prevent our kids from getting sick or getting severely sick. But I think that's the reason why parents have been reluctant. They don't see their children getting as sick as they might from a disease like influenza. And of course, much has been made of the political divisions over the pandemic um, and a lot of mistrust in public health officials. Uh, any thoughts on how, uh, what health experts can do to try to rebuild trust with the public after all of this? It's going to be a long road to rebuild because I think you're right that a lot of trust has eroded. But I think that public health is up for the challenge. And I think it's a, it's something that st starts today and will continue on for a long time. Uh, one of the, the uh, primary ways that we think about risk communication comes from a CDC handbook on risk communication, be first, be right, be credible. And I think we need to return to our roots in trying to achieve be first, be right, be credible. And I think by continuing to show up and do that well, that is the way that we will build back that trust. But I don't expect it to happen overnight. I think that we really need to be in it for the long haul. And I know we, we briefly mentioned kids, but let's return to that topic because uh, it's it's one I know that I wrote a lot about during the pandemic, and that was the approach to schools and the closures. And I know recently we have seen um, very troubling test scores. Now, granted, it looks like test scores are kind of poor across the board, even in states that tended to keep schools open more than other states. But um, what, what's, your, what's your overall take on where we're at with kids and education? And did we learn any lessons? I'm concerned about this as well. Again, I am a parent and my children were home for a long time during the pandemic. And I think that it does need to be a shared national commitment, not only to keep kids in school, but to keep them safe in school. And that was always my, uh, my, my policy stance, if you will, around education, that schools are not inherently safe against viral transmission, but they can be made safe. I think earlier in the pandemic, masking was an important strategy. Even now, ventilation and filtration are important strategies. And that is true, not just of COVID-19, but also the RSV and influenza that we are seeing right now. But it's not just about public health. Schools are for education. That is their purpose. And I never saw the energy around catching kids up that I saw early in the pandemic when school closures were prevalent. There were a lot of discussions about summer school and tutoring and what are the strategies that we can use to reach kids who have fallen behind. And I'm not sure we've really stayed in touch with that enthusiasm. And so I, that's something that I would like to see us return to. So the threat now of RSV and the flu, uh, I'm remembering too, I think two weeks ago, my middle child, half of his class was actually gone out sick. So this is definitely going around. Uh, can you talk to us about how serious those threats are this year? 
I've been seeing that in my area as well, and it is a very widespread problem. Uh, the virus that's circulating the most right now from what I've seen is RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. This is a virus that is very common and spreads very easily, both through the air and through contaminated surfaces. For most older children, for working age adults, it causes a cold. But for young babies and for older adults, it can be very serious. In fact, hospitalizations for RSV right now are the highest we've seen in years for children under the age of one year old. And so if you have cold-like symptoms, even if they're not a big deal to you, I really encourage you to stay home when you can and wear a mask if you have to go out because it's those young babies that we're thinking about. Looking ahead a little bit, we're already off to quite a severe flu season. We're about two months ahead of schedule, and the level of flu activity that we're seeing right now is more on par with what we would normally see in January. So if you haven't gotten your flu shot, I encourage you to do that. And again, think of these strategies that we've used during COVID-19 to reduce transmission and bring those into this next flu season. As a working parent, I know how disruptive it is to be home with your kids all the time when they're not feeling well. And I know that I'm going to do what I can to avoid that. Do we have a sense uh, yet of um, who is most at risk from the flu this year and also how effective this year's flu shot is? I know that it does vary from year to year because it's it's sort of a guess guessing game as to, to how to formulate it. That's right. Young children and older adults, this is common across infections, are at highest risk of severe illness. But really anyone can can get severely ill with influenza and that's why it's important to get vaccinated every year we don't yet have a sense of how good this year's vaccine matches up with what's circulating but based on what i'm seeing so far in the data i feel pretty good about it again we won't know really until january but the two strains that are most common right now are h3n2 and h1n1 and both of those are in this year's formulation and so i, I i'm hopeful that it will be a good match and before we leave uh, the topic of, of COVID entirely for this interview, I did want to ask you about an investigation uh, that recently was released by Senate Republicans, and it concluded that the pandemic was, quote, more likely than not the result of a research-related incident. What do you make of that finding? Well, I think this is a really difficult area that, from my perspective, will never be settled to the, the highest evidentiary standard. I don't think we will ever truly know from where the pandemic originated. I think it was most likely originating in animals because most new infectious diseases are. But again, I'm not sure that we'll ever get that final say. But I think it's enough to recognize that it is a possibility, maybe, that, that labs can be sources of uh, of, of leaks, of accidents, of spillover events. And I think that and just that observation enough to, to know that it's possible is reason to continue to focus on lab safety and lab biosecurity as important strategies for reducing our overall risk. Let's talk about a little bit of good news for a minute. Uh, over the summer, there were a lot of kind of scary headlines about monkeypox and the threat of that, but now it appears the spread has significantly slowed down. What happened there? This is a good news story for public health. Uh, monkeypox is a very uncommon virus that spreads right now during this epidemic, spreads primarily between men who have sex with men. Over the height of the summer in August, there were about 450 new cases every day, and there are now only about 25 new cases every day. And so there's been dramatic improvement over the course of that epidemic. I think we can attribute a, a handful of things. It's an all of the above situation, but certainly education and behavior change in the affected community 
vaccination and outreach and contact tracing by public health officials, I think have all contributed to what we're seeing is a, a rapidly declining uh, outbreak. I know that you were recently part of an initiative at the CDC that was uh, for trying to forecast how bad the next virus outbreak could be and offer some policy uh, solutions to that. Uh, and you likened the effort to the National Weather Service. Can you explain a little bit how that worked? Yes, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is the newest center at CDC. It was founded, uh, we opened our doors, if you will, earlier this year, and its purpose is to bring forecasting and outbreak analytics to public health problems where decision makers are having to make decisions very quickly. And in the past, they haven't always had the data or analyses that they need in order to make those decisions in an informed matter, manner. rather. And so the purpose of CFA, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, is to bring together the best modelers, the best data scientists, epidemiologists, and really create an engine to produce those analyses to support decision making. The center is just in the hiring stage right now, getting their feet under them. You can see a few of their early successes, uh, cdc.gov slash CFA. But I think this effort will really grow into be into one of the core capacities that we use to respond to outbreaks in the United States. So what's on your radar right now? What are you watching out for in the future and what should Americans be watching out for? In addition to influenza and RSV, which are two viruses that are close to home and are causing quite a stir this year, I have my eyes on an outbreak of Ebola virus disease in Uganda. This outbreak of Ebola is caused by Sudan virus. And I note that because it's a different virus than what had caused outbreaks in the DRC and in West Africa in previous years. That's important because none of the uh, the vaccines or the treatments that were developed for those other strains work on this strain. And so Ugandan officials are really having to rely on traditional and core public health strategies of contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine to break chains of transmission. And it's been a bit of a struggle. It's It's been a difficult outbreak to, to really get, get their arms around. And so I have my eye on that closely. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. But Dr. Rivers, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. We'll be back uh, in just a few minutes with our next guest. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. The pandemic has illuminated the importance of prioritizing health, whether that's physical or mental well-being. Today, Cigna CEO and Chairman David Cordani joins me to discuss critical health measures in the pandemic's wake, most notably vitality, the capacity to pursue life with health, strength, and vigor. David, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be with you today. David, you are uniquely positioned to give us a view on the state of healthcare post-pandemic. Can you tell us what you're seeing and how Cigna is responding? Sure. So we're over two and a half years, believe it or not, into the pandemic, and we appear to be on the um, better end of the curve, no doubt. In many ways, the pandemic has changed a variety of things. The way we live, as well as the way we work. It's also increased and amplified the amount of mental health challenges that we see across the globe, whether that's depression, anxiety, stress, or more complex dimensions of mental health. Employers are also grappling with how they manage a new normal through both a virtual workforce, but a workforce that's grappling with the tensions that exist, the 
the stresses that exist coming out of the back of the pandemic. And as an organization, we as a global health service company have worked to ensure that we have the services that are requisite to helping our employers who need us more than ever to help them have healthy, productive, highly engaged workforces, and then to work with our customers and our patients one person at a time to help them get the best quality of life they could have. You mentioned that we're starting to come to terms with COVID's long-term effects on our mental and physical health. Cigna recently launched the Evernorth Vitality Index. How did this index come to fruition? And more importantly, how does it work? So as an organization, we set a long-term objective to improve the health and vitality of every life we serve. And from our perspective, we stepped back and said, there's a higher order measure or higher order way to think about someone's ability to thrive and someone's ability to be their best whole person from that standpoint. As opposed to in the COVID environment, we saw many people were just getting by and just getting by is the opposite of having high vitality. So we partnered with the world's leader, Dr. Ryan, to develop and co-develop an index, a statistically and scientifically valid index that measures vitality to better inform us of the underlying drivers or derailers to vitality. And we're able to extract some learnings as we embark upon that journey of how to help individuals to improve their overall vitality and therefore quality of life. And what we learn is at the cornerstone of that clearly is health. With health, vitality is possible. Without great health, vitality is not possible. And, and lastly, we're able to learn, matching it back to our employer clients and community clients, that elevated levels of vitality have elevated levels of engagement, presenteeism, lower levels of turnover, and higher levels of performance. So we're embarking upon that journey, and it, the index is a rather exciting way to inform ourselves of specific actions to take to help individuals improve their overall vitality. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, after a whirlwind few years, many relate to this feeling of just getting by, which you alluded to. How is the index being used so far, and what has it unearthed? So the index is a, a means of informing us. And again, it's the start of a journey. So we'll, we'll never be complete here. When we think about what vitality represents, we're reaching for um, helping individuals optimize their quality of life, optimize their vitality. But what the index does tell us is that first, as I mentioned, at the cornerstone of vitality, so a person's ability to be their best person is absolutely health. With your health, um, it's possible. Without your health, it is not. It also informs us in terms of in the workplace, individuals who have elevated levels of vitality are more engaged, more productive, have lower levels of turnover. It also informs us that when vitality is elevated, health increases. Individuals eat better. The more um, active users of their medication, if they're in a chronic care program, they're more actively engaged with their physician partner. So there's a wonderful circle that is created as we inform ourselves through the index around vitality. And then ultimately, we seek to use it in a consultative way, one employer or one community leader at a time to better understand their current state of vitality and then to collaborate with them with products, programs, and services, be they virtual, extension of home, incentive, mental health, and coordinated care capabilities to help to either maintain or improve overall levels of vitality. So it's quite exciting. And I think it's a large step forward in the health journey, taking it to another level that is vitality. Those insights will certainly be critical for companies and individuals as they reassess the blueprint for how and where they live and work, which has been changed at a rapid clip. What's next for the index? So as I mentioned, the index is part of the journey. We are an organization that continues to invest in innovation. We're also an organization that 
orients around partnering. We seek to be the undisputed partner of choice. So we will use the index as a learning mechanism. It will continue to evolve. We will apply it, as I indicated, employer by employer, community by community. We will use it with our physician partner and our healthcare delivery system partners to expand what the market calls value-based care or better quality care programs. And we're already using it to evolve new programs and services, be it virtual behavioral health, depression and anxiety programs, coordinated care for individuals dealing with musculoskeletal challenges or otherwise. We're using it as a guide to action. So it's a step on a journey. It raises the bar. It presents an opportunity to partner and inform very specific actions, all with the objective of improving quality of life for individuals or helping individuals get the most comprehensive vitality. And what's really exciting about this is we know it's proven now that it's a tool that helps employers get a better overall environment from their employees. And that has never been more important than today coming out of the back end of the pandemic as employers are figuring out how to juggle this new normal. Yeah, that objective will resonate with so many of our viewers. David, congratulations on the launch of the index and thank you for making the time to join us today. Now, back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at the Washington Post. For our next conversation, I am joined by Dr. Seth Berkley. He's the CEO of Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. Dr. Berkeley, welcome to Washington Post Live. Nice to be with you. And just a reminder to our audience, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet your questions to us using the handle at Post Live. Well, Dr. Berkeley, let's jump right in. Uh, one way that the world was able to respond to COVID was by producing vaccines at a record pace. Uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about Gavi's role to ensure countries have access to these vaccines and also what has been your biggest challenge? So um, in the past um, epidemics and pandemics that have occurred, um, uh, wealthy countries, of course, wanted vaccines, bought them, and there weren't very many left for the rest of the world. We wanted to do something this very different this time. And so right at the beginning of the pandemic, even before people um, knew there was person-to-person -person transmission, we began to frame a possible new way of working. And the idea was to try to have vaccines available to those in the developing world at the same time as those in wealthy countries. And COVAX was born. It's a partnership working with uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, WHO, UNICEF, um, um, uh, many other uh, partners joined us, Gavi, obviously, civil society manufacturers. And we were able to deliver vaccines 39 days after the first vaccine was delivered in wealthy countries. Um, but we had many challenges in terms of moving forward, uh, vaccine nationalism, challenges in export bans. Um, at the end, um, we've delivered now uh, more than 1.85 billion doses and I think what's really special is in this pandemic, the global coverage is around 63%. In uh, the 92 low and lower income countries, the coverage is 52%. So not quite equitable, but much better than it's ever been before. 
Lastly, I'd say in, in, in this pandemic, and it's critical, is that we really have to make sure we reach the high risk populations. Healthcare workers, we should have 100% vaccination. Right now, we're at about 77%. That's better than in high income countries. But for the elderly, we're at about 64% coverage. And obviously, we'd like to be as close to 100% for that um, as, as we could. And to clarify, when you say 64% coverage, you mean the population actually receiving vaccines? That's correct. Of the, when I'm 64% of those in the elderly population being fully vaccinated. So um, you want to get to as close to 100% as you can, because that's the group, if there's other waves of disease, will be most likely to have that severe disease and to you know, um, uh, really affect the healthcare system. You also mentioned the phrase uh, vaccine nationalism. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, what happens is, um, of course, uh, the job of any political leader is to provide vaccines uh, for their uh, citizens. And um, we saw that happening. Um, but many countries went further than that. They said, we're not going to allow any exports of vaccines. We're not going to allow exports of of uh, the, the products that are necessary to make vaccines. Um, you know, we're not gonna give the know-how. And what that does is it fragments a system that traditionally is global in terms of supplies. And that really created a problem in terms of being able to, you know, have the, 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 the motto at the time was you're only safe if everybody's safe. And people would say it, but I'm not sure they believed it until after, let's say the Delta, um, wave where all of a sudden in India we saw a lot of disease and within a month that strain had spread around the world or Omicron where we saw a wave occurring in Southern Africa and again having it spread around the world. So when we think of pandemics, we have to think about this not just on a national basis, but we have to think about it on a global basis. And what areas of the country have you seen like the worst access to vaccines or or where we have the most progress that needs to be made? Yeah, so um, in January, there were 34 countries that still had less than 10% coverage in the developing world. That now is um, eight countries that still have less than 10% coverage. So the others have been lifted up. Um, that last eight, um, seven of the eight are quite fragile countries with very weak health systems. Obviously, it's important to have a resilient health system to be able to deliver product. And when we're not doing pandemics, that's what Gavi is doing. We provide vaccines uh, for more than 50% of the world's children. And what we try to do is build out that health system to the last mile. And right now, vaccines are the most widely distributed health interventions in the world, but there's still about 10% that aren't in that system. And that's where um, uh, people are mostly below the poverty line, two thirds below the poverty line, and 50% of the child mortality is still occurring. So what we'd like to do is extend this health system all the way out um, uh, to make sure that we leave no one behind. And that's important for healthcare and economic growth in countries, but obviously also to be the front line of defense for outbreaks going on in these countries. Yeah, that's really fascinating uh, point about countries that sort of lack that healthcare infrastructure. In a country like that, what does the distribution effort end up looking like if you don't have, say, the, the clinics, the doctor's offices, the pharmacies to distribute the shots? Well, what happens in those circumstances is you end up doing what we call 
um, you know, uh, campaigns or special immunization activities. And and you go out with a team of healthcare workers and you reach populations and you vaccinate them. That is very challenging when you have a product that requires two doses because you have to not only get that first dose, but then you have to find those same people um, a month later or whatever the dosing interval is and make sure they get vaccinated. So it's much better to have a health system in place where you can reach it through a fixed base system or even an outreach system where people know every Monday at this particular place there will be health workers with products. Of course, one of the challenges we had in this particular outbreak was some of the vaccines required extraordinary conditions. For example, the Pfizer vaccine is a vaccine that needs to be stored in minus 80 degrees. We had built cold chain systems across the world. We had put 65,000 new cold chain points in place before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, we had to expand them and then build a whole new ultra cold chain system. And these added to the challenges that, that were there in making this happen. That actually also makes me wonder, we do have a, a, a number of different vaccines. Which ones are being the most widely distributed? And are there other vaccines that are, say, easier to distribute than the Pfizer one, which has to be stored at the colder temperatures? That's, that's a great question. And, and it turns out that, um, you know, with all of the misinformation that you talked to about Caitlin and some of the, the factors that have kept people from being fully vaccinated, um, people have tended to want to go with vaccines that they hear about, that they hear are popular. We have 11 different vaccines in our portfolio, but uh, Pfizer, for example, is one of the most popular uh, products because it's been so widely used across the world. But we do have other vaccines. The, the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, uh, you know, is one that's been used as a single dose and is, is in a normal refrigerator. There's Novavax, which is, again, um, a, a normal temperature vaccine. Um, and so you know, the real challenge here is trying to give choice to populations, but to educate them at what might be best. So in, an, in, in a capital city, in an urban setting, it's much easier to deliver ultra cold chain vaccines. If you're getting into rural areas, temperature stability becomes more important than if you're going to areas that are fragile or where there's instability then really a single dose vaccine would be very helpful. Well, and of course, there's also the question of getting people the boosters. How do you weigh those two things, trying to get people the first you know, double dose perhaps of shots and then the subsequent boosters? Well, of course, um, you know, the message has got a little confused because we started out being very focused on high risk populations. We put a goal out to say the whole world should cover the 20 percent population that was at highest risk. That was healthcare workers, elderly and people with comorbidities. And, and people got confused with that message. They say, oh, you're limiting us to 20 percent. No, the issue was that's the group you should vaccinate first. When um, uh, vaccines became more available um, and, and people started you know, vaccinating more broadly, they didn't focus so much on those high risk groups. And that's why we've now come back and said, those are really the groups you have to make sure get covered in addition to everybody else that you can get vaccines to. Um, the good news for boosters is now that 82% of the lower income countries have a booster program in place but the numbers are very, very small, even less than the one you described with Caitlin um, in the US, so under 10%. And this is something we'll be focused on in 23, is catching up with primary vaccines for those at high risk, 
and then making sure that there are boosters available for those high risk populations as their immunity wanes. How's the U.S. doing in terms of helping other countries gain access uh, to vaccines? Uh, are we are we hitting expectations here? So the U.S. has been fabulous. They're the single largest supporter of the effort that um, we're doing. Um, it, its national program has not done so well, as you as you discussed. I mean, only um, about two thirds of Americans are vaccinated and about a third boosted and less than 10 percent now with the new um, uh, 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 boosters that are directly designed. But on the generosity scale, the U.S. has been generous both in financing, which is important to purchase vaccines and provide delivery finance, but also in terms of donating doses of vaccines when they've had excess. And we've worked very closely with the U.S. government to get these as widely distributed as quickly as possible. I'd like to throw in an audience question here. This one is from Rishi Bhattacharya from Michigan. And this person asks, is it inevitable in future global pandemics, the countries of means will get first access to vaccines before the countries of lesser means, even if the, even if the lesser means countries are more adversely impacted by the disease? How would you answer that, Dr. Berkeley? So um, that is really a great question. Of course, we would like to see a world where we can make vaccines available simultaneously, or if necessary, even in places that have greatest need. Now, one of the ways to think about that is to increase the production of vaccines. And, and what we saw in this particular situation is that vaccines are, are um, expensive to produce and therefore are quite clustered in where they're produced. And so, for example, on the African continent, um, they consume a lot of vaccines, but they, they, they produce less than 0.1% of the world's vaccines. So we're working right now with Africa to try to see if um, one can do technology transfers to build some facilities there. So perhaps in the next pandemic, and by the way, it's evolutionarily certain there will be a next pandemic, um, you can have production capacity there that could be helpful to try to make sure that there's vaccines produced locally. Because, um, you know, the, the hope would be that uh, when waves of disease move around the world, they don't necessarily affect every part of the world everywhere at the same time. And therefore, you can source vaccines from uh, different sources like we ultimately had to do. Well, so as you just referred to, you have said, quote, in many ways, the COVID pandemic was a dress rehearsal for the big one. Explain what you meant by that. What is coming next? Well, I, I mean, this pandemic, which which en ended up costing the world, you know, more than 12 trillion dollars shut down the entire world. It, I hope it has woken people up to understand that 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 diseases can um, and, and are important for everybody in the world. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. So, um, you know, that's really the important point. And I think what we have to make sure of in the future is that the world is focused on these challenges um, and, and that they, you know, we right now live in a, in a moment of panic and neglect, panic and neglect. So I remember in the previous Ebola outbreak in West Africa, um, we worked to rush a vaccine forward, got a vaccine available. You know, I said, you know, we're going to need money to, to, to purchase the vaccine. Everybody said, no problem. Money's no object. And, 
you know, three months later, people were like, well, Ebola's last problem. We need to be preparing in peacetime for these outbreaks and be in a situation that we can do everything we can to make it available. And remember, in this case, you know, the disease burden, there's been more than 15 million deaths, but it's a relatively low fatality disease, um, you know, compared to something like Ebola, where the, the fatality rate there is somewhere between 50 and 70 percent. And so there are potentially worse disease, and that's why we really have to be prepared for whatever comes in front of us. Would you venture to guess uh, the time frame here? When are we going to see another pandemic on this scale? Uh, next year, next five years, next 10 years? Well, um, I think it's Einstein that said, you know, it's it's particularly hard to, um, you know, uh, predict, do predictions, especially if they're about the future. But um, the, the issue here is there was a recent study that suggested that um, because of global warming, because of population growth, because of movement of people, that we're seeing a 2% increase per year in um, the likelihood of seeing a major pandemic like COVID. And, 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 and the study suggested that somewhere between 38% and, and um, 76% of, of, um, of, of people's likelihood to see this in their lifetime. So the answer is, yes, there will be more pandemics. You just heard about uh, monkeypox, you've heard about Ebola Sudan. Um, we don't know what the next one's gonna be. Um, and, and therefore, we really need to prepare for this all the time. And this is something that people who care about this have been talking about for a long time, but it's hard to get attention because people don't focus on it. They want it to be over. You know, right now, the world wants to be done with um, COVID, but unfortunately, I'm not sure COVID is done with us. Well, that leads right into my next question, which is, you know, I, I talk to epidemi epidemiologists, I talk to folks like you, and of course, you're hyper focused on this and issuing some very important warnings about the pandemic. And yet you're absolutely right. I don't want to think about the pandemic anymore. I want to go about my life. There's a lot more interesting things to do and pursue. So what's your advice to your family and friends? Uh, should they go back to their normal lives? What should their level of concern and awareness be? Well, of course, um, one has to go and live one's life, and I would never say anything of that, but you need to be aware of risks. And so, for example, if you're in a very heavy flu situation, it makes sense to wash your hands frequently. It may make sense if you're in very dense environments to wear a mask. These are things you can do to avoid disease and, of course, get vaccinated. So I think what people can do is sensibly adjust their preparations for these types of, of diseases going forward. But we have to think about many other things in our society. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, as part of our defense system, invest in peacetime in many, many layers of a defense system for the country. Even though the likelihood of having to use all those different layers isn't there, we as a society value making an investment in peacetime just in case in wartime we have what we need. We need to do the same thing in diseases. We need those resilient health systems. We need to prepare vaccines against all of the potential diseases and even ones we don't have vaccines for. We need to be in a position to rapidly make vaccines for them and, and do everything we can to accelerate that so that when the next outbreak occurs, we're better able to do it. That That's really smart work. It doesn't mean we have to focus on it all the time and talk about it all the time. But by not focusing on it and not doing it, what we then is get caught flat-footed in the case of another outbreak and not be able to respond quickly enough, which causes lives. And in this case, 15 million lives. 
Well, our time is growing short, but I would like to wrap things up with a second audience question uh, because I think this is a good one. Uh, and it's on the topic of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, Stephen Kozell in California asks, how can we address the anti-science, anti-vaccine organizations, groups, and individuals spreading misinformation and disinformation using the resources from all countries using a consistent messaging? And I would add to that, can you elaborate on the messaging that you use with folks around the world to try to convince them to get these vaccines? So um, vaccine hesitancy is something that has existed from the beginning. If you go all the way back to smallpox vaccine, the first one, there was fears of people because it came from cows of growing horns and all kinds of crazy, crazy messages. But the truth is we have been able to deal with these with local um, experts, with religious leaders, with community leaders. And this is something we do routinely around the world. This particular uh, pandemic has been completely different. For the first time, we had political leaders using vaccines and this disease as part of a political rhetoric, as part of um, you know what's happening um, um, in, for other reasons. And we've also seen um, misinformation coming from other countries using social media, which spreads at the speed of light. And, and so the challenge really here is it, it has now increased the risk dramatically. And the point is when there's a piece of information in one place, it is across the world and affecting people on the other side of the world just as quickly. And when you have these big you know, political discussions and countries aren't using products, it spreads to other countries and it makes it much more difficult. So what we need to do is return to a world where people trust governments, trust institutions, trust scientists and use the best science possible. We won't know all the answers early in a pandemic, and we need to be honest about that, but we wanna make sure we have the best science information available to move forward. Well, that's that's a that's a big problem. I'm not sure anyone has solved at this point, but we really appreciate your thoughts. Uh, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there, but Dr. Seth Berkley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, great talking to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.